2: Hello, everyone. Ron Guyer back with End Time Insights. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to do this. Thank you, Lord, for the good word of God. I love the word of God. His word. If I hid my heart that I would not sin against Him. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. We've been talking about the five warnings against apostasy that are found in the book of Hebrews, and we're up to warning number five today. Uh, let me quickly remind you of the first four warnings. Let's see. Did I write them down, or do I know them? I probably know them. Uh, let's see. Number one was found in Hebrews chapter two, and it warns us not to neglect so great a salvation by drifting away from the Bible truths that we've learned. That was the first warning against apostasy that the writer of Hebrews gave to the Jewish Christians. Hebrews three warns us against developing a hard heart of unbelief through the deceitfulness of sin. We've got to be careful about that. Number three was in Hebrews 5, and it warns us against staying immature, against not growing, of becoming stagnant regarding the Word of God, the truths of the Bible, and it warns us of the danger that immaturity can lead us to. And Hebrews 10 gives us a sharp rebuke for failing to give the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, his due. Jesus, the first and the last message every Christian church should be focusing on, should be teaching, should be reminding their congregants. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. So today we're winding up. It's the fifth warning in Hebrews against apostasy. It's in Hebrews chapter 12 and it starts in, oh, let's say 15, Hebrews 15. And I have grown so much doing this, this study. It is amazing the insight that the writer had about apostasy and the dangers to the church. And I love what he did because you can tell he studied the Old Testament and we're going to go back to that. Uh, we're going to talk about Deuteronomy 29 to make a couple of points and about the dangers to the church by not following the messages that we get in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and in the Old Testament. You know, the, those the law was a schoolmaster to teach us, and yet the stories that are told to us are selected by God's Holy Spirit for the purpose of warning us not to do the same dopey sinful things that the Jews did before. And yet here we are, we are the children of God. Well, so too were the Jews, the children of God. And the dumb things that they did, well, guess what? We are repeating them. Hebrews 12, verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. There's a lot in there. Let me get you the amplified version. Instead of saying, looking diligently, like the King James says, the amplified says, see to it. And that's a command. And that's a command in the plural. Basically, he's speaking churchwide. I want all of you, every one of you, see to it. See to it. That's a holy charge. It's a true divine calling right there. See to it that no one falls short of God's grace, that no root of resentment springs up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So you're reading that scripture. And basically, he's telling the Jewish Christians, he's saying, see to it. Pay attention, take heed, look diligently that nobody in your congregation, absolutely nobody, falls short of God's grace. The grace is the opportunity for the entire world. If you're alive, you have an opportunity to receive the grace of God. And yet he's speaking to people here that have fallen short, that once knew grace and have fallen away, fell of the grace of God, that have once came to Christ, came to know Christ, became Christians under the grace of God, and they've fallen away. The easy to read version. Be careful that no one fails to get God's grace. Be careful that no one loses their faith and becomes like bitter weed growing among you. Someone like that can ruin your whole group. The writer in this discourse here, makes the phrase see to it. He makes it plural. He wants to extend the meaning that this command is given to everyone. It's a command Everyone in the church, watch out for everyone else. Look at your church. Are you doing that today? Do you think you're doing it? i we are currently not in a church. <laughs> we attended one church, big, big, world-famous church. We attended that for 36 years, and uh, we started teaching the truth about homosexuality in our marriage classes. That wasn't really appreciated, and so they said they were shifting. But basically, all our classes were ended And if I can't teach, I have no business staying there. We went to another church. We stayed there for about five or six years. And they started teaching that God is not sovereign in the earth today because of the authority that is given to man. So we had to leave there. So we have our own kind of church. It's really a Bible study. It's not a church. We get 20 to 30 people show up. We fellowship. We eat. We teach the Bible. We worship the Lord. We pray. It's just a wonderful, wonderful environment. It's the highlight of my week. We do that every other week. We have prayer every Thursday night and so we watch out for one another is the point i'm making we had one person attending they had fallen into a relationship they did not belong in and hallelujah it was great somebody brought it to our attention we fought we prayed and once again this person's back where they belong strong in the lord and the power of his might a doer of the word blessed in all his deed no weapon formed against my brother in jesus name may prosper hallelujah So, yes, I believe this with all my heart. I am my brother's keeper, and I pray that my brother is my keeper also. And this, see to it, it's a command to everyone in the church to watch out for everyone else, but it's not given in the sense to promote a spirit of criticism or carnal judgment, but it's given in the purest sense of spiritual care. I love it. Watch out for your brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters. Watch out for them. The same word is used in 1 Peter 5, 2, where the elders are exhorted to take the oversight of the local church. And I love that. You are looking out for the church. You are up on high, looking over, looking down to see, hey, is anybody laying down? Is anybody falling? Is anybody in trouble? A friend of mine who attends a church was telling us that the the pastor or the pastor's wife or whoever was talking about, hey, man. Gas is getting expensive, and people understand that, and that they've been hit hard in their pocketbook, especially the people, you know, they work 9 to 5. They work 5 days a week. They live paycheck to paycheck, senior citizens. And this person was exhorting them, I don't care if gas goes to $300, $400 a gallon. You bring that tithe into the church. You make sure you keep your blessing. Well, I'll tell you, that seems a little backwards to me. I think I would have said, hey, "Amen." If you're struggling and you can't afford your gas bill, come see us. We'll do what we can. Amen. I think that's Christianity in action, not so concerned that the churches are here to take and to take and to get and to get. I understand the principle, give and it shall be given unto you, although that scripture is written about forgiveness. But at the end of the day, as you watch out for one another, I'm not watching out to make sure you give your money to me. I am watching out to make sure you have enough money to eat. You have enough money to get gas in your car. That's true Christianity. Do you need help with your rent? I'm not saying we're rich, but that's the aspect of this care that he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 12. So it's used over there in Peter where it talks about that the elders need to have the oversight of the local church. In noun form, the phrase is used in Acts 20 and 28 where Paul was calling the elders together. He says, I'm about to get out of here. I want to make sure that you are exercising oversight over the lives of the people and that you do not fail of the grace of God. All of you act like bishops and seeing that no one succumbs to gracelessness. In other words, the writer is urging what you might call (laughs) some sanctified meddling in each other's lives. But yes, we should know where we stand. We must consciously involve ourselves in the body of Christ, assuming responsibility for seeing others that they go strong in grace and also humbly receiving their loving care for us. It's a two-way street. We all need God's grace to finish our race. Vincent, commentator Vincent, writes that the idea is don't fall back from grace, implying that there's been a previous commitment, a previous attainment. The present participle Marxist is something that is constantly going, lest one be falling back from grace. One Greek word is used for the phrase, come short of it. That word is, uh, let's see it, hysterio. And it means to be last or come up last, the latter, the hindermost part, or to come on something late. It also means to be inferior or last in order, to fall behind in a race and thus fail to reach the desired goal, failing to finish the race, to the point of being excluded from the contest. Don't fail of the grace of God. It's as if someone arrived late and due to their own fault missed the mark and has not reached their desired end. It is this failure that the writer of Hebrews warns against, and it is against this backdrop that the writer charges the saints to look out for one another, to protect one another, to see to it that none of us fail of the grace of God. This is true brotherly love. This is true Christianity in action. And let me read that scripture to you again, because I want you to see the second part of it, Hebrews twelve fifteen. looking diligently or see to it, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many would be defiled. And the easy to read read it like this. Be careful that no one loses their faith and becomes like a bitter weed growing among you. Someone like that can ruin your whole group. And that's the the main thought here uh, about what can happen if we fail to stay in the grace of God. Root of bitterness. It was associated with the word wormwood that was used often in the Old Testament. It was also used in reference in the Old Testament when God was warning the Jews against idolatry. Let's go to Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verses 16 through 20. This is really interesting. This is what I would call a companion scripture. What is it? We have cities, sister cities, right? Like in America, there's a city, and then in a, a different country, there's another city with the same name, and they call them sister cities. Well, this is a sister scripture to Hebrews twelve, fifteen. For you know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt and how we came through the nations which you passed by, Moses writing. And you have seen the abominations of these nations that didn't know God, these heathen nations. You have seen their abominations. You've seen their idols of wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Lest there should be among you or man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. The danger the writer is pointing out is this. When someone in the congregation turns away, in the Jews, it was from worshiping God. In the Hebrews 12, it's from the grace of God. When someone turns away, whether it was the Jew to idolatry or the Jewish Christian to another type of sin, they become a poison to the rest of the congregation and most definitely have the potential to infect the rest of the people. Just like Moses did, this writer warned the people of the serious dangers that they were bringing into the congregation. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, uh, Paul called out this young man who was sleeping with his stepmom. He not only called him out, but he kicked him out. Why? Because he was protecting the rest of the congregation. And yet, look, this brother who was sleeping with his stepmom, Paul says in verse 5, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he loses the covering of the church. Basically, the church should be watching out for one another, and we are covering one another. But when someone's in sin and they are kicked out of the congregation, they lose that covering, and they are turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, lest their spirit would be lost also. And basically, that's what Hebrews twelve fifteen is warning against. Don't let that happen. Moses reminded the people of the gross idolatry that they witnessed while they were enslaved in Egypt. And then while they were traveling through the wilderness, he witnessed their idolatry. And if they witnessed this idolatry, that they had hearts that were devoted to the Lord, then they couldn't help but be repulsed by what they saw. And they surely wouldn't want to participate in the form of idolatry. Nobody in Israel, no individual, no family, no tribe, was to get involved in any form of idolatry for any idolater could become a bitter root that could defile the entire nation. In Hebrews 12, 15, they were applying the same principle, the same warning to the local assembly of believers. For one sinner destroys much good, Ecclesiastes 9:18. Even if the offenders kept their sins hidden and were confident that they could escape judgment, <laughs> the Lord would know and he would judge. There could be no forgiveness They would be plagued in the Old Testament and they would be killed and their names would be blotted out from under heaven. Deuteronomy 9.14, we'll read that in a minute. Uh, They would suffer from all the plagues named in Deuteronomy 28. Concerning, wormwood was a plant known for its bitter pulp and often associated as poison. Therefore, Israel was warned to be extremely vigilant, just like the Hebrew writer is doing now. Therefore, Israel was warned to be extremely vigilant against the sin of idolatry. When they entered the land of Canaan and faced the temptations of the lewd, debauched, sexually charged practices associated with the pagan idol worship, they were warned time and time again, come out from amongst them, be ye separate, have no fellowship with the works of darkness. Calvin says it like this, as soon, therefore, as anyone should endeavor to excite his brother or sister to worship false gods, God commands him to be plucked up, lest the poison should burst forth and the bitter root should produce its natural fruits in the corruption of others. We don't do that in our churches today, and I know we've got the terrors that crept in. I'm not sure that Christians who are sinning are considered terrors. I could be wrong in that, but I don't think so. But just as one family member who falls into idolatry in Israel could affect the whole family and turn them apostate towards God, So could one Christian in a church today turn many in the congregation against God and lead them to apostasy. And check out the further writings in Deuteronomy 29 by Moses. And it come to pass when that one who's sinning hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. Let me get some insight on that. That's hard to understand in the King James. The good news translation makes it clearer. Verse 19, chapter 29 in Deuteronomy. Make sure that there is no one here today who hears these solemn demands and yet convinces himself that all will be well with him, even if he stubbornly goes his own way. Because that would destroy all of you, good and evil alike. Basically, there are people who are deceived in their own sin, and yet, just like in America today, peace, peace, not a problem, we're not going to be judged for the abortion, we're not going to be judged for homosexuality, we're not going to be judged for drunkenness and the murder of our children. That's false. And God says plainly, make sure there is no one here today who hears these demands for holiness and yet convinces himself that everything's going to be Okay. That is not what would happen, and that person runs the risk of destroying everyone in that meeting, in that congregation, in that house. And don't forget, verse 29, what comes before verse 29, verse 28, and it's filled with 14 verses of blessings for the Jews if they kept God's covenant with them. Then come 54 verses of curses if the Jews would break the covenant with them and turn to the pagan gods in idol worship. Verse 20, let's see what the Lord says about judgment for someone that does that. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all of the curses that are written in chapter 28 shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. This is the example that was given to us so that we would not break covenant with God like the Jews did. Remember, please, the Jews they were also children of God, just like we are. Back to Hebrews, Hebrews 25 in the NIV and verse 26 and 27. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, because if the Jews did not escape when they refused him who was speaking, or Moses in the five centrum, when he spoke to them and he warned them on the earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Who warns us from heaven? Jesus, the Word. Are you getting this? These warnings I've been giving you the last few months, they aren't from me, Ron. I'm not giving you them. Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus is speaking to the church, and he is the one who is warning you. Remember, Hebrews one one. in the old days, God spoke to us through the prophets. Today, he's speaking us through Jesus Christ, through the Word of God. Then there's Hebrews 12.26. At that time, his voice shook the earth when he was judging the Jews, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And this is prevalent. I mean, there are things in the church that can be shaken. You need to understand that. Hebrews 12:28, one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. Therefore, we, who? The Jewish Christians, the church. Therefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, cannot be moved. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yet, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. Wow, what a great scripture. Let me tell you about that. Therefore, we who, us, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. The kingdom, the kingdom's going to go on whether you're in it or not. The kingdom cannot be shaken but let us have grace. Let us operate in grace. Let us stay in the grace that we warned against falling away from. Let us have grace. Why? Whereby we may serve God acceptably. Okay. We serve God acceptably by grace. Grace does not mean you don't have to serve God, but grace is the acceptable way in which you do serve God. People say, well, I don't have to fear God anymore. I'm under grace. There's no reason to fear God anymore. God is love. Hallelujah. God would never judge within the church. No, God doesn't do that. God doesn't bring judgment. God doesn't allow suffering. All those are false teachings. Let's read it again. Therefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. And here comes the best part of that scripture. He's going to tell you what serving God in an acceptable manner looks like one more time. Therefore, we, us, you and me, receiving a kingdom which will never be moved, let us have grace. What is the purpose of grace here? Whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. I love it. You want to serve God? You must serve God humbly reverencing who he is and godly fear. I don't want to burst your bubble, but the word there for godly fear is dread. You've got to understand he's God. You're not. You are the clay. He is the potter. He makes you. He forms you. He can do anything for you, to you, with you that he so chooses. Therefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Grace, the purpose behind our acceptable service to God. Acceptable service to God is done in reverence and with godly fear. No godly fear, no acceptable service. But it can't be done without grace. Now, I love this here. This is really, really good. The last verse there in 29 don't forget, we're talking about the Hebrew warnings, the uh, five Hebrew warnings. The last one is danger. What is the danger? The danger is in disrespecting grace and what it does for you. And we just showed you that grace, the purpose of grace here is to serve God acceptably. We serve God acceptably when we walk in the fear of the Lord. And now there's one more verse here for our God is a consuming fire. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Commentator Stedman, this is awesome. He sums up this fifth and final warning, writing that the proper attitude of Christians must be one of awe that a being of such majesty and glory could find a way to dwell eternally with such sin-controlled and sin-injured creatures at us. God's love is just such a fire. It destroys what it cannot purify, but it purifies what it cannot destroy. In Jesus, we have a relationship that cannot be destroyed. Our great king is leading us through trials and difficulties in order that we may at last cry, as Job cried, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Is that not beautiful? I love that. I love that. I love that. God's love Is such a consuming fire that it destroys what it cannot purify, but it purifies what it cannot destroy when we are in Christ Jesus. As we conclude this study on the five Hebrew warnings against apostasy, I wish to remind you that there are dozens of other warnings in the Bible in the New Testament. This is just one book. And yet there were five warnings against the apostasy. The danger is here. And as long as the danger is here, so too will the warnings be. I'm sure God's going to give me something next week to continue on in this vein. I'm sure I'm going to find warnings somewhere else. And I will probably ask the Lord to open them up to me so that I can share them with you. You know, the Bible says we ought to walk worthy of the call of God in our lives unto all pleasing. We ought to be fruitful in every good work. We are to increase and abound in the knowledge of God. We are kept in the knowledge of God. We are kept by the power of God unto salvation. At the end, remember, it's all about knowing God. You don't know God, and that's why you get into heaven. No, God must know you. You must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You must walk humbly. Thou hast shown me, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly with your God. Father. I pray that you put the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, Father. I pray that they would desire the sincere milk of the Word, that they would grow, that you would put a supernatural hunger in them for the Word of God, that they would know you according to your Word, Father God, that they would study to show themselves approved unto you, a worker that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth, Father God. I pray this hunger manifest in them. I pray you keep each and every one by the power of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen.